You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I hope wherever you are in the world and whatever you might be doing, you are doing very well. You're about to listen to a conversation between myself and a bloke called Billy Tegatoff. Billy is in probably my favourite band that I discovered through 2017 called The Oxford Coma. They released an excellent album called Everything Out of Tune. Do check it out. We talk all about that, plus a heap of other things. Let's get to the chat. Here's Billy. Some time ago, and look, I did feel compelled to reach out to David to organise a chat. It's, I made it's a massive sounding album that reminds me of where Soundgarden may have ended up if the grunge revolution didn't happen in 1991, courtesy of Nirvana. And your music also sounds like it's got a bit of tool through it as well. So, um, mate, for many people listening, because I do host a radio show and podcast series, um, this will be their introduction to the Oxford Coma. So, would you, could you go on to describe the album and indeed the band's music? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, okay, so the band itself has been around for, I don't know, five or six years. Um, and a couple of years ago, uh, we were, uh, well, we were planning on disbanding, um, and I was planning on starting something new. Uh, and, uh, I had, I had a concept and a, a new band name and all that and the, uh, the concept was to try to capture um, with instruments something like what uh, psychedelic auditory hallucinations sound like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the original objective, and that was kind of the mindset I started writing with. And granted, this is going off memories of uh, drug experiences from when I was in high school, so I was, you know, working... Uh, yeah, with not a lot to go on, but um, <laughs> but that was kind of the uh, that was kind of the idea, um, and uh, eventually just sort of uh, wound up instead of going with another band, restaffed the Oxford Coma. Um, our original drummer came back to uh, to help me write some of this stuff, and then uh, we got a new bassist, um, and eventually a second guitarist. Uh, so. The we we took our time with this. The idea was to do the best album that we possibly could with uh, with what we had to work with. So we uh, this went from I think about twenty songs down to the nine that made it on the album. It took about two years to write everything, um, and then the plan from the get go was to record it with Steve Albini. So um, so I had been in communication with him and his studio manager. Uh, from the time we started writing. Um, and then finally got in there in April and did it. Uh, so as, as far as what the, the music is now, I mean, we kind of lost sight of the original objective, but I think a, a kernel of it still is in there. Um, particularly with Doug, our bassist playing. Yeah. Um, he's the one making all the weird noises. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, I don't know. We uh, past the point. We just kind of um, uh, gave up on trying to really control the direction it was taking. We were just we were jamming, and you know things that we were liking. We just kept going with. So yeah, uh, not sure how to describe it beyond that. It's just uh, where we wound up. Yeah, no, that's fair enough, mate. And um, look, anybody listening out there, that's that's as much of a, a a descriptor that you need to get actually from the original creator. 
So I did read something both a little funny and also a little confrontational that Steve Albini shared, so I'm glad you brought him up so early. Um, it was about his experience riding in an airport shuttle in Barcelona with Tyler, the creator and Odd Future. Um, now, really, if you read any of Tyler's or Odd Future's lyrics, it actually seemed like it was life imitating art, Steve's experience. And it was around the same time that it was reported that Tyler was banned from entering New Zealand. And there was also a campaign run here in Australia by an activist organisation called Collective Shout that was collecting signatures to take to the immigration minister asking for him to can cancel Tyler's visa to Australia. So my point after that very long statement made is that Steve doesn't sound like he's afraid to shoot straight from the sound of things. So what was your experience like working with him? Uh, you know, I'd heard that. Um, I'd heard that he could be quite intimidating. Uh, that wasn't my experience at all. Um, he was pretty laid back. I mean, he's, he's just, he's a total nerd. Like you could tell he's doing recording because that's what he loves doing and watching him work. I mean, the guy's like a surgeon with a tape machine. Um, so yeah, I mean, the whole thing was pretty laid back and I, granted, um, he did, uh, he, he thanked me for coming in as prepared as we did. Apparently most bands don't, don't do a lot of the legwork ahead of time and kind of, uh, kind of mess around and waste a lot of time while we were there. Um, I mean, we had a, we had a limited budget and a limited amount of time. So we wanted to do as much pre-production as possible, but, um, we knew what we wanted. His whole objective was to give it to us. So, hmm. um, he, he was, uh, the one, the one thing that, um, I'd heard about him that rang true was that he doesn't give, uh, he doesn't give feedback unless it's technical feedback. Um, like asking, you know, the, there, there was a guitar squeal on that part. It was, was that intentional? That was about the extent of the, feedback he'd give on a take or oh yeah it sounded like it was on tempo but he made a point to not um inject his opinion uh of the aesthetics of anything we were doing uh which i thought was cool yeah agreed and i can't tell you mate how many producers or, or engineers that i've spoken to have told me that even some well-known bands that i'm not going to mention mate they turn up to a studio and they don't have their shit together um, I, I'm not sure that I understand that because I'm a musician myself because it's not like the producer's going to act like George Martin for the Beatles and just sort of you dump everything on him and then he makes sense of everything. It's not really how it works for 99.9 .9 repeater set of producers that are out there. So it's, um, you know, when you're working with a guy like Steve, is it, and look, I'm not a Nirvana fan, by the way, so I'm not coming at, at it from the perspective that I'm a fanboy, but is it tempting to start asking him questions about some of the artists he, he's worked with? Like we attempted to ask him about what it was like working on in utero? Uh, kind of, although it felt like it would be weird to do it. So I didn't, um, although <laughs> he did, he did indulge like every question that we wanted to ask him. I, most, mostly we asked him about neurosis and he was totally mm, cool okay, with talking so... about what it was like working with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a Nirvana fan to be honest with you. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> but, but I mean, the only question I'd like to ask him was, did you think, it, did he think it was odd that they want to follow up one of the most successful and, um, you know, commercially appealing albums of all time with an album that is at times virtually unlistenable and with a relatively unknown producer? But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that would have been a good question. Uh, yeah. Uh... 
he probably would have answered it too. <laughs> so, mate, about you guys again. Um, your album was available to stream via Decibel Magazine recently. Now, I think that's one of the most yep. widely available. <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, widely available print and online extreme music publications around in 2017, soon to be 2018. Did you get much of a kick mm -hmm. from that campaign? Like, did it did it work out well for you? Uh, no. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, we saw a little a little bump in in streams, but um, based on you know the staff picks for for Decibel's top albums of 2017, and um, I guess the the artists that were getting the most accolades from them, um, I don't know that we were really something that was all that appealing to their readership. Yep. And we're, there's a, you know, there's a big thing going with doom. There's a big thing going with death metal. And we are neither of those to be sure. Mm. Yeah. Look, I, I, I don't, I don't know much about disability. I've got to say. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I thought it was an unusual pairing, but I was looking forward to asking you that question, and, and I thought your response would be is the one that you've given to me, because I think you get a lot of run-of-the-mill metal fans that might be reading that magazine who might not really be able to interpret what you're trying to achieve with your music. Um, I mean, I, I I don't really know. I can't speak for their readership. I, I mean, I'm friends with... Um, most of my friends are are metal fans and uh a few of them play in bands that did make decibels you know top 10 or whatever it was albums mm -hmm. um so yeah and i i know for a fact that they appeal to a pretty specific audience that uh that already exists because they sound similar to you know a few other bands that are that are currently um I guess uh, in in vogue for 2017. Yeah, thank you. That's age. what I was looking for. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So look, I thought um, if they, I don't know whether they did this, but I don't think they did. But uh, I couldn't see that they included the video of cartoons, which I think is an excellent album cut, and it's actually the album cut that could probably live a life of its own outside of the album, because there's a lot going on through that video, and I do love the concept. But mate, for the people listening, can you explain the theme or the concept behind the video to the album track cartoons? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, that's actually probably the closest to a concept we've started with for a video ever. Um, we were we were trying to do sort of an homage to uh, Silence of the Lambs and the, the whole Buffalo Bill scene, um, and uh, I mean we had to we had to morph it because that's not really what the the content of the song is about, but. Um, it, it sort of turned into like somewhere between that and American Horror Story, or uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. We we uh, we had uh, uh, the PR company that we were working with um, really wanted us to get a video out as part of the release campaign, and they wanted to do it um, on a. I want to say they they wanted it on. Uh, on Wednesday and they told me that they would really like to put it out on Wednesday on, I think, uh, the previous Friday. So we actually wound up shooting the whole thing in about 
four hours and then I edited the whole thing in the uh, in the three days following. Jesus. So um, okay. there wasn't a lot of time to really there wasn't a lot of time to really think about it. Um, it was just kind of all right. Is this can I watch this and look at it and is it tolerable? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, send it off. Jeez, okay, yeah, was that ear split PR, is it, that you were working with the, the promotions company? What's that? Is that ear split PR? I, I, that's how I found out about you guys, was through the promotions that they sent through, the blasts that they sent through. No, uh, no, I, I wish we'd been working with ear split to begin with. Um, no, we were working with a, a bigger company that, that works with typically bigger bands and bigger... Uh, festivals and even a few television networks um and uh they'd done they'd done some radio stuff for us in the past and i thought they did a, a bang-up job with the radio stuff uh but the the press stuff we got mm, and i guess this is nothing against them we're just probably not the client the right clientele but uh mm-hmm. we got more or less the exact same type of coverage that we got with ear split uh for 20 times the money yes yeah okay yeah there's a big bloody lesson so in that, I, isn't I, it? yeah uh, yeah yeah which unfortunately i had to learn the hard way but um that was part of the plan from the beginning too was to use them because i figured you know uh if if ear split did this good of a job for this much then they're gonna do you know this much more of a job for that much didn't turn out that way of course wound up you know bailing out of that campaign early because it was completely unreasonable to stay in it um and then you know came back to dave yeah no fair enough mate and look you do have to try these things because you are an independent artist and you just mentioned you know that something that you have to do when you're an independent artist which is that whole do-it-yourself thing i mean you mentioned on the wednesday prior to the is it the friday did you say you had to get a bloody video mm. sorted I mean, that's uh, for people listening, that's what you need to do if you're trying to get your music out there, don't you? You have to meet deadlines that seem impossible, but you've just got to do it in order to reach and achieve broad coverage to an audience that you might not ordinarily have access to. Right. Um, yeah, they had uh, they had managed to get Metal Injection to agree to premiere a video that didn't exist yet. <laughs> so yeah. we had to get one to exist. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, look, it's, you know, what about, because I, I had prepared a question, but I think you've, you've, you've kind of already answered it, mate, and, but I'll ask the question anyway. It was, um, you know, the internet provides a lot of opportunity, but it provides, it's, it's equal opportunity really, isn't it? Which means everybody's out there trying to promote their music. So how do you cut through all the bullshit and let your music be heard? You've, you've just mentioned that you worked at one PR company that wasn't probably as an appropriate fit for you as, say, somebody that had cost you 20 times less the one that I heard about you through. So is it a case of just working with people who, who you feel you, your gut instinct tells you know how to promote your music to an appropriate audience? Um, yeah, and I, I think there's an element of working with people who um, is at least conceptually appreciate what you're doing um, I know the, uh, the ear split people are, are, I mean, they don't, I don't, I don't get the impression that they make a ton of money doing what they're doing. They, they do it because they, uh, I think they find it to be meaningful work. Um, yeah, and they great. do a hell of a job. So, 
I don't know. If I ever figure out how to cut through all the noise and uh, and get our music heard, I'll I'll be sure to let you know. But that's that's a nut I haven't quite cracked yet. Maybe the Oxford coma could do the U two thing. You know that bloody um, that ego maniacal U thing that U two did a couple of years ago with that awful album they released. I think it was in two thousand and thirteen or fourteen, where it downloaded to everybody's iPhone and everybody's iOS device. Maybe maybe you could do some sort of a guerrilla campaign like that, mate. So on every man, woman, and child throughout the bloody globe on their iOS device, the latest Oxford coma release right. appears. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah, I, I got to admit, I heard a, I heard a story uh, about um, the net neutrality rules being repealed and uh, the, uh, the I guess the FCC or somebody was going through all these online comments that were, uh, for the most part, against it, and they were claiming that something like, uh, I don't know, two out of five of them were were fake and were written by bots, and it got me thinking. Yeah, mate, just go and get some, go and get, <laughs> go and get the, go and get the Russian bots that apparently influenced the election over there, mate, a year ago, you know, with the the election of uh, the Donald. Mate, go and get some of those bots uh, yeah. on your behalf, you know. So, and that leads very nicely into my next question. So, I have read commentary online that. I think you said it, or maybe you know, a, a journo somewhere said it, but your music is as influenced by the current social climate in the USA as it is by music itself. So, mate, what's your take on the Donald's America a year after, or a year and a bit after he won the uh, election? Oh, it's a fucking embarrassment. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't. I obviously don't care for the man much um, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, it has felt like a much more hostile country to live in for the last, I don't know, year and a half or so, ever since he started gaining traction. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's just my perception of things or if that's a legitimate, uh, observation, but, um, that's certainly what it feels like. What do you think his What do you think his elevation to POTUS uh, represents? Is it Is it a reaction to? And I'm asking this as a question, by the way. This isn't my personally held view, but and I've asked a few artists of this that have been brave enough to to. I've been brave enough to ask, and they've been brave enough to respond. So please don't respond if you don't want to. But mate, is it a reaction to things like identity politics? Because that's that's the feedback I'm getting. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. Um, it's kind of like the. Uh, I mean, the one group that gets left out of identity politics, um, to be sure, is, uh, you know, straight white men. And I think if you look at uh, the bulk of his supporters, you get Christian, straight, white men, Um, mostly working class, which is somewhat ironic, given uh, given the legislation that they just passed. But um, yeah, I I don't know. I I think that uh I think that this to some extent this is uh you know, a backlash against that. It's like, well, what you know, what the hell makes XYZ group so special like hmm. uh were people too we didn't choose this that and I don't I don't really know. I have read I don't know exactly how many books, but I read a handful of books that are you know, studies of right-wing politics and, 
Um, and just the, you know, the history of the Republican party and the, you know, the, the rise of Donald Trump trying to wrap my head around uh, how people can get behind this sort of thing. And mm. I have not managed to make sense of it for myself yet. I think a lot of people in Australia just look at it from the perspective that they weren't, they weren't that crash order candidates, either one of the two of them. So Hillary or the Donald, right? So it was, and it, and it was very partisan. So it was very much like you're either for the person or you're against the person, kind of like the way people follow football teams. So it's mm-hmm. sort of the, the actual content in policy was disregarded for whether or not you followed the individual. And, and I think, I, I, don't, I don't know whether this can be confirmed, mate, you, you might know or somebody out there in the world of the, were, 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 the wild, wild west might uh, want to inform me on this, but I think there's a very low voter turnout this time around compared to in years gone by. So people were disengaged. The people were engaged were the people that tended to look at politics like a sport. You know what I mean? So I don't think that there was as much engagement as in years gone by. So people weren't as aware of what voting for Donald or even the people that voted for Hillary, what voting for them actually would lead to. And and I think the, that my point there would also be that, mate, I don't think, and I've already made it, but I'll underline it again. I don't think you had either, either candidate wasn't really somebody that you could aspire to want to be. And I think for as someone who is an American, as someone who stands on the sidelines watching this stuff, I mean, you know, we are so heavily impacted by American foreign policy in Australia. Like you guys go to war, we have to follow you. It's just as simple as that. So um, that's certainly the, the line that either side of politics here in Australia takes. And economically, the way things are going with China and um, to a lesser extent, I think North Korea, I mean, God knows that's a whole another subject by itself, but you know, more, more talking about the economics of it, <laughs> you know, we're, we're so heavily impacted by the decisions that are made in America. And it was funny, not funny, but it was interesting to see that our prime minister, Malcolm Turnbull was he and the, uh, president of Mexico, they were the two guys that Trump blasted in his first week in, in office. He really had a go at our guy and the, and the Mexican guy as well. So it was interesting to see that. And there are a lot of very nervous people here in Australia um, about what the Trump election to president or the elevation of Trump's Trump's elevation to presidency, God, I'll get it right, Trump's elevation to presidency would mean for Australia. So it was the first time that I saw a lot of average people, sort of like mums and dads and working people, to take an interest of what was going on in US politics. It's... Uh... I mean, it's, it's very loud. It's very hard to ignore. Mm. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's understandable. Mm. Well, let's take a right turn and let's talk about your wonderful music again. But more specifically, my, my show is called <laughs> Scars and Guitars. So I do like to talk about the, the, the technical side of things. Now, mate, according to the Orange Amps website, you're an endorsed artist. Is that still the case? That is still the case. They just, uh, they just, Loaned us a backline to do a little run up the uh, the west coast. Wonderful. Okay, so you're still using the PPC yeah. 412 cab and the Thunderbird 50 head. Yep. Awesome. What is it about that combination that works for you? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I didn't find it by doing any particular research. I had a friend who. Uh, who was selling one, um, and this was prior to uh, becoming an Orange Doors artist, and um, uh, he was selling it for a really good deal, so I wound up buying it from him, and um, it was a good deal, because I've had that amp for years now, uh, and 
I still haven't found anything that performs as well as consistently. Um, I mean, we use, we've used some other amps to get some, some different tones. Uh, we also used a, a Marshall 1959 head on the record. Um, but, uh, that amp is that, that Marshall is like a very specific sound. It's this very nasty, fuzzy, um, mm-hmm. like treble to the point where it hurts that that's kind of what, oh, where wow. that Just, came in. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, and then the orange, I mean, that's a much more balanced tone. It's got a lot more low end. Um, so the combination of them, I, I think made for, for a pretty good guitar tone. And are you using like a, like a, a Strat or an, an SG? Cause it sounds like they'd be the two guitars that would probably work really well with that combo. Um, for almost the entire record, I was using, um, uh, I was using a Dunnable. Um, are you familiar with those at all? I'm not. Tell us all about it. Yeah. It's not a brand I've heard of actually. Okay. Um, have you heard of the band Intronaut? Heard of them, but I've not heard the music. Okay. Um, they're pretty wild, uh, like progressive, um, uh, somewhere in the progressive, somewhere in the psychedelic metal realm. Um, I saw them open for tool a few years back. Um, and then I was shopping around for a guitar and a friend of mine had, had bought one from this company called Dunnable and, um, posted something about it on Facebook. So I went and looked at their website and, uh, I thought the guitars were awesome. So I wound up ordering one from this guy. And when, uh, when the, the PayPal statement came back to me, it said, uh, that the charge was from Intronaut. And I thought that's, <laughs> that's awfully strange. Ah, right. Um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so anyway, the, turns out that, uh, the, the main, the main creative force behind Intronaut is this guy named Sasha Dunnable, who also happens to be a kick-ass luthier. Um, so I wound up becoming friends with this guy uh, over the course of a few years. Um, I, I mean, my uh, what I do for a day job is web development and marketing, so I wound up redoing his whole site for him and, uh, and so on and so forth. But... Um, yeah, so I used one of his guitars uh, for the majority of the record because I think they're better than Fender or Gibson or just about anything else out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that was the shape of the thing is modeled after an old Gibson RD, um, pretty thick strings, 12-gauge, uh, bare-knuckle pickups. Um, and then the other thing that I used was a, an electrical guitar company, Series 2, if you're not familiar with those, those are the uh, aluminum-necked guitars. Uh-huh. Okay, gotcha. And that's because you want that real trebly, midi to high high sound. Well, uh, that you'd think. You get that with some aluminum guitars. Like, uh, like if you listen to Steve's band, Shellac, he uses probably the, the nastiest-sounding aluminum guitar that uh, has ever been produced, uh, Travis Bean TB500. That's what that is. Um, yep. Yeah. Mm. So, and he manages to uh, make it work. 
but that's a very hard guitar to control. The ones, the electrical guitar company ones, um, you can actually get a super wide range of tones out of the thing. Um, I never would have thought I'd become like a, a an advocate for aluminum necks. It just never occurred to me a few years ago, but uh, now I have I've got a couple of them and I love them. It makes sense also from the yeah. perspective that as a touring musician, a working musician, when you're on the road a lot, bloody guitars and basses, as I mentioned, I'm already also a musician, make, especially on basses, their necks move around so much. You know, when the heat being left in a mm-hmm. van and then you take them out and you've got to re... You know, the first set, sometimes I play covers bands, so I'm playing four sets a night or what have you. If it's a bad day, because it's right now, it's probably about 40 degrees where I'm at, 40 degrees Celsius, that is, so what's that, about 105 degrees Fahrenheit? I mean, you can you can imagine what that's like when you go from being driving in the car, moving your stuff, then you go into an air conditioned environment. The necks themselves don't know what's going on. That's a typical wooden neck. Um, so aluminium's also got that other property where it doesn't move around so much. Is that what you find? Uh, yeah, I mean, it does it does expand and contract a little bit, but the only factor is is temperature. You don't have to worry about humidity or. Uh... Or anything like that. Um, I know going from, I live in Arizona, which is, I mean, it's a desert, so yeah, no humidity. But if, yeah. if I take a wood, yeah, if I take a wood neck guitar just over to California for a show, you know, I got to, I got to make a truss rod adjustment before I play because the, the neck has started to give a little. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my, um, I don't know whether it's related or not, but I play music man basses. And the truss rod snapped inside of it. So it didn't snap down the bottom um, near the nut. It snapped halfway along. Um, they, they were they weren't they were pretty pretty good about it actually. They're tooling up a neck and sending me out mine out here before I've got to send mine back to theirs because of course they've got proprietary products. They don't let you hang on to broken things in other words. Um, but yeah, I, I've got to think it must have been to do with the weather, you know, because uh, I am a working musician. I'm on the road quite a bit, meaning. I'm in my car a lot, travelling from gig to gig around southeast Queensland here in northern New South Wales. Um, I've got to think it's just you know 17 or 18 years down the track, mate. That might have been a key influence in in the break, you know. Um, so it's a, it's a, I've spoken to a lot of musicians about this, working musicians, I mean, and yeah, it seems to be one of those things that you're constantly having to stay on top of, and especially uh, with your Thunderbird Thunderverb 50 head, mate. You must have to travel around with a stack of 12 AX7 valves. Uh, surprisingly, not so much. I don't know. I, I've either I've gotten lucky, or that's just a super sturdy head. Um, I have I have yet to have to change tubes on the road ever. That really surprises me. Yeah, no, that's one of the reasons that I stayed away from valve amplification. Even a valve preamp was just you know things getting dropped and things being put on top of things and driving in cars and with stiff suspension or what have you and just that knockabout thing, but. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Orange are making fairly good stuff. Although, mate, just between you and I, and God, of course, people are listening to this, Orange doesn't have that great a reputation here in Australia. Um, I don't know whether it's really? because... Well, I don't know whether it's because of the importer, mate. You know, we don't ever have direct from supply here. You know, everybody, we're just a branch arm of a, you know, someone has a supply relationship with somebody here. And um, everything costs basically triple or double what it costs overseas. And um, apparently the support on the products when things go wrong isn't that great. So consequently, you don't see a great deal of it. I've got to tell you, mate, in in my time traveling as a musician, I probably 
out of the hundreds of musicians that I've met, I've probably only met two or three people that use Orange. Um, involuntarily, I'm not talking about endorsed artists because um, there are no endorsed artists in the co covers world. <laughs> you know, there are people that like to use gear, and that's it. You know what I mean? I always love it when I go to these cover bands' websites, and they they have like the brand in the corner. You know, you'll know what I'm talking about, being an internet marketer and building websites for people. They co-opt the brand and like try to make out like they're endorsed by the brand, as opposed to they just use the brand. You know what I mean? So it's like oh, the, the band endorses this product as opposed to the brand endorses this band. Anyway, I digress. I just thought that was funny. But uh, but yeah, no, it's it's always been a bit of an interesting thing that I don't see Orange that much out on the road here. I know there are some fairly big bands that use them, originals bands that use them. But, uh, mate, I just haven't seen many or really any, certainly not in the last few years. Um, I think it's much more prevalent in the States. I see them all over the place, but then again, I, I know they're more expensive here than they are in the UK, um, but not not to the extent that you're talking about. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think, look, I'm only, you know, God, if the supplier is listening to this, I'm not having a go at you. I'm just talking about the feedback that I've received when I've asked people about what their experience is like. And I, I looked at the 200B about 15 years ago, the bass amplifier they had, the sole bass amplifier they had back in the day. Uh, I know they've got a few mm -hmm. more out nowadays, but it played beautifully. It was very creamy. You know, if you wanted that that sort of Paul McCartney style sound with a bit of a growl through it, um, that was the one to go for. But mate, there was no way I was going to be travelling around with that bloody thing bashing up against walls when I'm walking up and down stairways, fire, you know, firewells and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I used Galleon Kruger, and uh, I switched from Fender or Sun, but you know, Sun was rebranded Fender took ownership of the brand name Sun and mm -hmm. so I was really Fender, you weren't playing Sun, you're really playing Fender and that was a heap of shit. That was terrible. Um, that blew up on me on stage, you know. That. Um, oh, I've, great. I've never had a fireworks, that's the only time I've ever had almost a fireworks display on stage. Um, so I just junked it, I just gave it away to somebody who thought that they could fix it for 50 bucks and that amp Australian was about two and a half or three thousand dollars which is about I don't know, four and a half or five grand for you guys. It wasn't cheap. Yeah. And I probably only got probably 40 or 50 uses out of it, which is bugger all for a working musician. You know, so I've, I've had Galleon Kruger since 2009 and I haven't looked back. Huh. You know, it's just right on. You know, so, um, mate, um, that's really all the questions that I had. Um, how do people get in touch with you to um, link with you guys and find out more about your music? Uh, they can visit our website, theoxfordcoma.com. Uh, if they want to stream and or download the music, we have it all up on uh, theoxfordcoma.bandcamp.com. Um, all the social media stuff is either slash theoxfordcoma or at theoxfordcoma. Uh, and we have vinyl for sale. You can get that. Uh, there's a link to it from the website. It's also up on the oxfordtrauma.digcartel.com. I think well, that's all of them. Yeah, I'm, that's all of them. I'm going to do my bit for you here in Australia. It'd be awesome to see you guys come down. I know it's hard to come down here, mate. You know, um, we just we just had a promoter go out of business because of some alleged sexual assault bullshit. So when I, when I say bullshit, I'm not talking about the allegations. They're apparently quite real. It's just, it's unbelievable that people carry on like that in 2017. It was a guy that I'd had a recent interaction with too. So walls of the throne room sleep and 
couple of other bands have pulled out of their Australian tours for 2018 because of it. So, yeah, it's um, yeah, it Worlds in the Throne Room, Throne Room in particular. I was really looking forward to watching. I love that nouveau black metal stuff. You know, the stuff that when they're not really wearing corpse paint and they're more talking about universal subjects such as nature. Um, but I'm, <laughs> <laughs> then devils and demons and dungeons and dragons, um, which is nothing wrong with that. It's just not my thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was talking to Brandon Seabrook about this. I'd love to bring him down, you know, the jazz guitarist from New York. Um, uh, never heard of him. Uh, check his music out, man. It's, it's out there, but it's, it's, um, he's a jazz guitarist. So I can, you're a musician, I'm a musician. You can hear what's going on that there's, it's actually technically correct in there, but it sounds utterly confusing for the first 15 seconds. It actually takes you. 15 seconds or so to actually register what's actually happening, which I, which is a very unique experience for me because I consider myself not schooled. I'm not, not, I'm not someone who can read music per se, but I've got a pretty acute ear to listening to music and finding what's melodic. It took me a while with his music, but that's what I loved about it was it sort of drew me in and made me really force me to listen to it. And consequently I have been listening to it rather a lot since, but your music's a lot like that too, mate. I've got to give you that compliment. You know, it's sort of, Initially, it's quite confrontational, but once you pay attention to what's going on, particularly in the track cartoon, um, you realise there's a lot. Of, there's a lot actually happening in there that's worth paying attention to. Well, thank you. <laughs> that's a it's a it's a solid observation about that. Uh, with any luck, we can get more people engaged to the point where they'll listen to it a few times. Well, I'll be... Well, I'll, I think it kind of needs that. Yeah, well, look, I'll, I'll be doing my bit down here, mate, as I was... As I, was uh, I didn't get to say... I was about to say, but it went off on a tangent. I've got, a, as I said, a, a radio... <laughs> I've got my radio show and I've also got my podcast series. But, you know, with my podcast series, mate, it's, it's, it's unusual. Well, it's not unusual. I understand why it happens because most of the artists that I do interview are from Europe and from North America. 90% are. My, the majority of my audience is actually in North America. So hopefully it gets a bit oh, a pop there for you. Yeah, there, mate, there's 22 million of us down here and there's bugger all, you know, people that get into experimental and extreme music in Australia. There's probably about 80 people in Brisbane that do, where I'm from. Um, so <laughs> I'm sure they listen in. And on the radio show, I know that a lot of people listen in because they give me feedback. But um, the podcast, yeah, that tends to go global, which I think is rather nice. So people all over the world will be able to find out about your music if they tune in. Awesome. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and that was my conversation with the bloke called Billy Tegatov, who was in a band called the Oxford Coma. Thank you so much for listening.